a few of the actors, uh, including Mark Ruffalo, uh, the Hulk, uh, wanted to, after the premiere, to have a chance to go and, and, and do a few rides. And I thought this is, it was going to be a riot. I mean, this guy is amazingly popular. Tom Holland, same thing. Welcome to Mosaic of China, a podcast about people who are making their mark in China. When all of their stories are pieced together, they form a mosaic of China. I'm your host, Oscar Fuchs. In today's episode, the first in season one, I talked with Philippe Gass, who at the time of recording was the president and general manager of the Shanghai Disney Resort. Philippe is one of the most charming business leaders I've met. And in this interview, we talk about his experiences in the five or so years that he's been with Shanghai Disneyland. From the tail end of the construction phase to today, where the park has been open for around three years. Among other things, we talk about how Philippe managed local and international stakeholders, about the Chinese consumer and their tastes on everything from Snow White to Star Wars, and most importantly, how the Disney organization has itself managed to adapt to the needs of the China market. Since this is episode one, let me quickly explain the format of the interview. There are three parts. The first part is just a two-way conversation, but it starts with the guest introducing an object that in some way describes their life in China. In the second part, I ask every guest the same 10 China-related questions, all on the theme of their personal experiences, tastes, and opinions. And then in the final part, the guest recommends someone for me to talk to in the next season of Mosaic of China, which I'll be starting to record in the autumn of 2019. So back to today's interview, Philippe and I recorded this in my apartment in Shanghai, so the sound quality isn't as good as the interviews that I've done in the studio but it won't distract you from what I hope is otherwise a great conversation. Well, thank you very much for coming, Philippe. Um, I'm sitting here with um, Philippe Gass, who is the president and general manager of Shanghai Disney Resort. Good morning. Good morning to you. And you've now been in Disney for how long? It's been... I have been with the Walt Disney Company for almost 28 years. 20 so a long time, a lifetime. Wow, well, we'll get onto that. But first of all, as, as you know, the first question I ask everyone on this podcast is, tell me about the object. What object have you brought in today? So it's not really an object, it's a picture. And uh, it has to do with my arrival in China and all the anxiety I could have given the, the immensity of the task that um, I was given. And um, it was something that our CEO, Bob Iger, was always repeating and repeating. He wanted Shanghai Disney Resort to be authentically Disney, but distinctly Chinese. And um, I received, as a matter of fact, a few days after I arrived here, a picture of Mickey Mouse, a plush of Mickey Mouse on the Great Wall of China. And uh, first of all, it's a beautiful picture because the Great Wall is, is a beautiful uh, a monument and, and a masterpiece of, of what China can deliver. But it was, for me, the perfect combination of what you know i was here to do something very disney but respectful of the culture of china and embracing china well that's a great starting point and at what point in the long project which was you know, the, the whole building of shanghai disneyland at what point did you physically come into china i arrived approximately two years before the park opened so just at the time where we were in um, very intense discussions with our government partner on what will be the date of the opening because you know it's a very important thing once you say what date it is you have 
to open that day, no matter what happens. So it was really the first thing I had to do was to um, you know be involved and, and, and work with the government on what that date would be, two years before the opening approximately. Did you stick to that date then, ultimately? Well, it took us a little bit of time. It took us another six months before we were able to have enough uh, confidence in our ability to deliver. But once we did uh, announce it, yes, it was, it was that one, June 16th, 2016. Well, congratulations. And in terms of the construction project then, if you come just two years before opening, at, at what stage was the construction then? We had broken ground a few years before, a couple of years before I arrived. Uh, we had the contractors on site. The Walt Disney Company staff, the cast members, were not there yet. We had no back office, no structure really to accommodate that, only for the project, the field people. Um, but it was pretty well advanced. The hotels were you know, building up quite well. The park was what took the most time. It's the most complicated, typically, because of the theming and especially because of the expectations and the sense of, of perfection that Disney requires when it comes to how you immerse people in a story. And that was maybe the most foreign for our Chinese contractors and our Chinese partners. Yeah, because, you know, ju just when you see here in Shanghai, there's a new shop opening, it says launching in one month, and you see that sign two months later, three months later, even a small shop. And so whenever I see that in Shanghai, I always think of the Disneyland project where you had so many things going on at the same time. You mentioned the expectations with the constructors. Can you, can you think of one or two examples of, of when you were not in, on the same path as, as them? We've always been on the same path in the sense that the contractors had a very high sense of pride to be involved in a project like this. Remember, it was the, the big project that China launched when it comes to this type of partnership with the Western companies. It was the biggest investment of the World Disney Company in its history. And definitely everybody was very proud. The Chinese partners and contractors were, were very proud to be involved. The thing is, there are things you don't know. And there are expectations that are very uh, different from what you would naturally be doing if you were to deliver the same thing. An example is all the rocks, the rock work that you see in the park, the mountains that appear to be very real. We have the highest and the tallest mountain in Pudong, man-made. Uh, it has to look like a mountain. The painting on the rock has to be very specific. They had no idea how to get there. So we didn't have to, it was more than just having them go and do this. It was first month and month of us training them, having people come, teachers, to help teach them how to do the work and then send them on the field to go and do it. That's an example of what would take a few months in a place where we do it directly took a few years uh, here in Shanghai because of the need to educate, to control, to test, to do again, to change. Um, so everything was multiplied uh, because of the fact that we would still not compromise on the quality we wanted to deliver. It had to be a Disney-level quality, no matter where you are in the world, and that required more work and education. But the partners and the contractors were actually very excited because they saw the value for them to bring up their level of technicity, their level of expertise in field they had not touched. And do you think that from, that, from then you've seen those same contractors do other work similar to Disneyland, or do you think that's still going to be a one-off project more or less? Well, at this stage, uh, as you know, there's not that many projects of that magnitude in this area, themed entertainment. I would say, as you know, in Beijing, um, Universal Studios is, uh, is ramping up. They have started the construction. And I suppose uh, that some of the employees that were, you know, 
working on the Shanghai project will bring that expertise elsewhere. There's a, an entire level. It's not just about the technicity. It's also about how the contractors on the field approach their work when it comes to safety. Um, as you know, China uh, is a developing uh, market when it comes to safety regulations and rules. They are very focused on that, but they are not yet there yet. We brought in directly the level of standards of safety and, and risk management that we apply everywhere in the world. That has been years and years of our Chinese partners and contractors working with those guidelines, with those principles, and that also has helped move up the level of uh, attention, the level of focus on something very important, which is preserving the life of people. And you mentioned those relationships you had with the contractors. It, it makes me think about the other relationships that you had to manage in Disneyland in the whole project. Most importantly, I guess, the, the joint venture partnership you had with the Shanghai government, right? How, how did that start off for you? Well, it's something that I've, uh, even though the context is very different, I was prior to this job the CEO of, um, of Euro Disney for uh, seven years. And the construct of Euro Disney is very similar to the construct of Shanghai Disney Resort in the sense that we have one major partner in Paris, and that's the French government. A government is a government. Uh, culturally speaking, things are different, politically speaking and philosophically speaking also. But the way they look at the issues are very similar. They look at the issues through the eyes of the consumer as a, an elector or as a citizen that has to be satisfied that you're here to protect and you help to nurture. And that's always going to be their screen. A business does not always look at it this way. They look at that from a demand perspective, from a consumer service perspective, from a business profitability perspective. And those not always align instinctively. There's always sometimes a difference. And that's what happened. So I was aware of what the challenge would be. My biggest focus when I arrived was to spend a lot of time with them. Uh, the chairman of the board was a member of the, of the Shanghai government. And my focus has been on establishing trust and have him uh, realize that Shanghai series of being a joint venture, uh, uh, the majority owner being the Shanghai uh, government, I was here right. to help. Right. What, what, what was the, the exact share? How much does the Shanghai government own? 57% for the Shanghai government and 43% for the World Disney Company, so majority owner. And um, so they, they realized that my purpose was not to be the Disney guy telling them what to do, but being somebody who understood that to succeed, you have to make the best balance. Uh, we are Disney. We brought an expertise in a field that they didn't have an expertise, but we were very new to the Chinese market, the Chinese consumers, to the relationship with the contractors. And we, had, uh, uh, we were ready to use them as guides, as advisors, and uh, realize that what we can bring and what they can bring make eventually you know, the project succeed. And so what was that then? Like when, when you said that you didn't just teach them about Disney and come, come here to just, you know, give them a lecture, what did we actually learn from them that maybe you weren't expecting or, or you were surprised about? It was a lot about these preconceived ideas you have on, especially the Chinese uh, consumers and their expectations or how you adapt your product to what the real uh, 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 needs are versus what you, you think you want to give them. A Chinese consumer is not an American consumer. A Chinese Disney fan is not a US Disney fan. The level of knowledge of the brand itself is completely different. People don't know the Disney brand very much. They know the name Disney, but how much could they relate to what the stories are? How much do they connect emotionally? That was not there. And 
we came in blind because, you know, as you are Disney and how, you know, successful we can be around the world, we think everybody knows us. We think that this is going to be fine. We have learned the hard way. It's not always the case. Paris was an example of that and Hong Kong and others. So we have developed that ability to expect what we don't know. But still, they have helped guide us in terms of don't fall through the traps. Uh, do not, you know, develop a product that is not going to be uh, relevant for uh, for the Chinese uh, market. Uh, but most of all, they've been very helpful when it comes to helping us navigate the maze of the Chinese administration. That is maybe more foreign than the consumers for us. And they've been very, very helpful. Well, there's a lot of, a lot of points you made there. Maybe um, I'll focus in on the Disney IP. Um, what you said works in some countries, some markets that did not resonate here in China and vice versa. Can you think of which particular characters or which particular IP were, was, was more successful than you had imagined and which was completely less? Well, I mean, a good example is... Some of the big surprise for me was a very, very classic uh, princess, Snow White, that is extremely uh, popular here in Shanghai. And uh, uh, looking back, we realized that one of the big connections that, that the, the Chinese and the Shanghainese have with Snow White is that this movie was actually one of the few animated movies released in China back then, talking about in the late 30s. And that has stayed in you know the, the, the stories that the parents were telling to their kids and and, and so on. So that is very popular. Some of the most new, what you would think, maybe one of the most popular uh, franchise that Disney owns today, Star Wars, uh, very popular throughout the world. Uh, as you know, a, 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 a cult franchise for many, many people leaves our Chinese consumers pretty cold. Um, it's a complicated story. They did not get the the chance to immerse themselves in the saga back in the 1970s, late 70s, and that has been uh, complicated for us. The, the 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 tidal wave of success of the of the new movies being released throughout the world were definitely not um, uh, as successful in uh, in China. So that's a good example of franchises that may take a lot of time to be built or or, or won't work. But then now, with, with Disney having Marvel as well, you've got, you've got a few more chances to, to, to have another bite of that apple, right? Yes, Marvel is different. Marvel has been very powerful. I think there's also a, a great thing about the Chinese people is they love stars, and they connect very well with you know, names that they've seen in other movies. Iron Man, for example. Uh, Robert Downey Jr., he's an immense star here in China. Uh, and many of the other actors. I was shocked when we had one of the premieres of Avengers, um, uh, in the park at Shanghai Disney Resort and uh, a few of the actors uh, including Mark Ruffalo uh, the Hulk uh, wanted to after the premiere to have a chance to go and, and, and do a few rides so I took them uh, Tom Holland Spider-Man was there too so Tom Holland Mark Ruffalo and myself plus a few others would go in a, in a ride they wanted to do Tron um, the attraction and we got into the backstage, we started to go through um, the, the queues, and some people start going out of the ride that they had finished, uh, Chinese consumers. They saw Mark Ruffalo, and I thought this is, it was going to be a riot. I mean, this guy is amazingly popular. Tom Holland, same thing. And it surprised me. And I know them, I've seen a lot of their movies, you know, outside of Avengers. I was shocked to tell you, really, the, the level of excitement that very spontaneously the Chinese consumers saw uh, or our guests had when they saw those two actors. So 
uh, Avengers and Marvel is very successful here in, uh, in this marketplace and throughout the world. Let's go back to another point that you said, which was about how you deal with the general like, bureaucracy and red tape um, and how your joint venture partners would have helped you navigate that. Your perspective would be quite unique because I think most people who I speak to um, would usually work in a wholly owned foreign entity. And you being a joint venture and such a high profile joint venture at that, what particular things did you experience that you think perhaps other CEOs in, in other less complex organizations wouldn't have experienced? Well, as you said, this project is as important as uh, for the World Disney Company as it is for the Chinese government. It has been an immense reflection of the opening of China to tourism. It's a, it's a milestone in that uh, uh, development of tourism in the, in the country. And our Chinese partners from the central government in Beijing to the local government here in Shanghai and Pudong have been extremely, extremely helpful when it comes to help us go through uh, the maze of, of some of the, the difficulties we could have encountered. An example of that, something that can sound and seem trivial is the Lion King, the Broadway show that we have. The customs is actually one of the biggest uh, issues you can face, any company can face when you come to importing um, uh, material or, or, or products from another country. Uh, it's one thing when you bring some wood to make um, furniture, but in our case, we're bringing feathers from very exotic birds from places that God knows only uh, and other things. And that was a headache for the authorities that, you know, as in any country, if I don't understand what that is, I block everything. Now, we have a show to open. We have rehearsal to take place. We have costumes to build. Um, our partners have been immensely, you know, useful and, and, and supportive of us to kind of get, help us, like, you know, uh, green light the arrival of those products. We are complicated as a company because everything we do is real. So we reproduce themes, countries, areas, uh, um, using the materials that exist where they come from. Uh, that would take years to get to come in the country if we were not supported. Um, so we have had you know, the chance to be able to expedite and go through um, many hurdles thanks to the partnership. That's great. And I, as a consumer, you, I know, I just don't, you know, you, you don't realize that to get that level of detail correct, it does require that amount of effort and that, that amount of headache. So, yeah. I would not expect that to happen in America, for example, because you are here, you control, you build, you buy, you can. It is different in a place where the rules of the, the game are different and we have, to, we have to learn about them and learn how to uh, address them. When you're speaking about trust, how did that work then when you were here in Shanghai, you'd been here for a couple of years, and then you were reporting back into the headquarters? So that relationship must sometimes have been just as mysterious as the relationships you have here in, uh, in, in, with your Chinese partners. Well, it's, it's always the case, and that's true for many of my you know, colleagues you know, representing foreign companies in, in a country that is not theirs. You have to explain that the way things happen are not the one, uh, are not you know, happening the same way in, in America in our case. And that is something that is always complicated. You have always to kind of justify why things have to be handled in a certain way, even though that may surprise people, it is the way it's going to be working. That we have to face. But I've been with the company long enough and around the world to have been kind of used to doing this. The key there is to be yourself trusted by the people you talk to. As we started the conversation, I told you that I was you know, with Disney for 28 years and I have worked around the world in any 
pretty much location Disney has. So I'm a known entity when it comes to what I can do, what I can deliver. And I have this relationship with the people I was talking to um, that helped me navigate through this. The other big thing we had going for us is that Bob Iger, the CEO of the company, has been directly, completely involved on that project. We had Bob Iger come every month, pretty much, and getting closer to the opening, he was here for almost three weeks in a row. Um, so he was very close to what was happening. He's been one of the biggest advocates of uh, the Chinese market for the Walt Disney Company. He has a connection through Xi Jinping down to the entire organization. So he knows China. He's a curious man. He knows uh, the Chinese politics. He's very curious about the Chinese culture. And that was very helpful because he, um, he knew already what we were talking about. And so going to, I guess, the, the end of the project was when really the, um, the park opened, it was launched, um, and then, of course, it started running. It's now been a couple of years already. What was the biggest change, not just in your role, but I guess the biggest change in terms of things that um, were unexpected or, or things that, um, that didn't work as you thought would between pre-launch and then post-launch? Uh, nothing worked the way we thought it would. So it's the beauty of a market that is a market you don't know. You can study it. You can, you know, assume things will happen a certain way. Um, at the end of the day, the park opens and the consumers, they tell you what they really want. And they tell you how they really behave. And that's been a surprise for us from the day we opened. So I think the biggest challenge for us has been to put all our pride on the side and adapt adapt fast because we also had to be a success. We had to demonstrate the, that this project was going to be uh, uh, um, what we wanted it to be. And so we really had to quickly unlearn what we thought we knew and learn what the consumers were telling us, be relevant, adapt to them, uh, uh, adapt our product from you know, the food and beverage to the ticket price, to the controls in place, to the merchandise, to our trade partners and the network we had established and how we were going to work. Um, the power of uh, uh, e-commerce is amazing in this marketplace. And we had not anticipated to be that strong, for example. So many things had to be adapted. And that's been pretty much the story of our first two years of operation is adapt, learn, and move, move as quickly as you can, be nimble, has been the, the word for us. Which just from an outsider's point of view, I wouldn't say Disney internally as a culture would have had much experience with that because, you know, when, when I think of Disney, I think, look, it has a formula, it know, it know what, it, what, it, what it does, it does it extremely well. So how did the culture adapt when you had to really be much more nimble in, in this market? Well, I think we were prepared for many surprises. We just didn't know where they were going to be. And we did not expect them to be as many as we faced. But that's the thing about Disney. What you say is right. I mean, we definitely have a leadership position when it comes to entertainment under all its form and shapes uh, around the world. We've been very successful. We are very successful. The connection that people have with our brand and our stories is just unique in the world. But, you know, there is something that we have learned also is that we have made mistakes throughout the years. And I can take to some of the things that I remember. I know I was involved in the opening of Euro Disney. That has been maybe a good example then of the lack of knowledge of Disney of what it means to be relevant and adapt to people who are different from the one you know. Disney had been immensely you know, successful in the U.S. and copied-paste the product and put that in, you know, in Europe and in Europe, in France. It didn't work 
like that. It took years to establish the connection, the trust, to adapt. And we have learned that. Hong Kong was another step where we had, you know, learned from the mistakes made in Paris and tried to adapt. Still, made some more because you always learn. Uh, so it's been a road of 20 plus years that has allowed Disney to, if not prepared entirely, at least ready for some surprises and try to anticipate. So we've been very, very careful about, uh, and that's something we did succeed immediately, was balancing the success and leave potentially profitability on the table to make things right to balance things in the right way, to be accepted by the consumers, even though they didn't know us. We wanted people in China to understand that we're coming uh, in this marketplace with humility. And that was number one thing. So we have prepared ourselves, not for everything, but at least mentally, we were humble and we're still very humble. That's great. And I, I guess it keeps life interesting, right? I mean, if, if you were just to open up another park and it worked just as easily as the others, then that's not, not very fun. Well, yeah, that's the exciting part. That's the thing about, you know, um, it feels like a very, very expensive startup, but it is. You know, you just go into a place and uh, you try to learn as much as you can and you try to go fast. And this is also something very new for Disney to go fast because we are a massive corporation, right? Uh, these companies tend to not move very fast because of process and organization. We had to be. So it was quite uh, exciting for us. Uh, and maybe also the most exciting for the team here in Shanghai has been the establishment of our own identity, our own culture. Because remember that the 12,000 people that started this business in 2016, 11,000 of them had no idea of what Disney was maybe three months before we opened. So it is also a very massive work when it comes to human resources, for example, and, and culture and communication, engagement uh, on how you prepare people, not on the technical side. Anybody can learn, you know, um, the technicality of, you know, some food process or merchandise. It is about our culture, what we are, how we want to be, how we want to be perceived, what we want to give to families. And that was, I guess, the biggest satisfaction for all of us is to see how great the cast members have been from day one, knowing where they were just a few weeks prior to their arrival. And I happen to know that by the time that this recording will come out, you will have left Shanghai and you'll be moving on to another thing. So what, what do you expect to happen in the future? Well, yes, uh, yeah, I will be moving to uh, another part of Asia, Japan. I lived in Japan a long time ago, 20 years ago already. Uh, still with the Walt Disney Company, we'll be um, heading um, very, actually, mature business there, uh, the, the Tokyo Disney Resort, which is... Uh, two parks and fantastic success for now 35 years um, and I will also be engaging in, in running some of our global license businesses so out of Japan but uh, more global function so it's a new challenge I've been, I will have been here in Shanghai for five years as you said before the opening way before uh, to get the project you know, ready and, and open it you know, on time and, and, and successfully run the operation for a couple of years a bit more than that um, so it was part of my path and part of my journey. Now it's the next step. I'm excited about that. I'm excited to go back to Japan. Um, and um, yeah, I'm looking forward to this uh, new page. 
Well, when I when I launch Mosaic of Japan, I'll I'll come and interview again. <laughs> Pleasure. Yes. <laughs> I guess my my last question before we move on is, who who actually is the audience then here in Shanghai Disneyland? Like, um, are they mainly local Shanghai people? Are they from other parts of China? How many foreigners do,、uh, actually come here? It's uh, it's Disney for China. So it's ninety eight percent of the people coming to Shanghai Disney Resort are Chinese. Um. A majority of them, not majority, but maybe forty to forty-five percent are Shanghainese. But、uh, we have been actually quite nicely surprised by the the numbers of people visiting from other parts of the country. But it's mainly China and Chinese guests coming to our park. And that's what I, I guess the model is, because you build it in a place where there is a large catchment of middle-class people with a certain spending power. It makes me think. Where will Disneyland open another resort in the next few years? Like I can't see one happening myself.、Uh, well, time will tell. I can't answer that question actually. But、uh, you know, Disney will be there. There are many people asking for the ability to have a a physical connection with a Disney brand. So it can take many forms and many shapes. I、um, will see. Very good. Well, thank you so much for that, Philippe. And let's move on to part two. So, at part two, I'll ask you ten questions, and you can answer them either quickly or you can give me a little story. So, number one, what's your favorite China-related fact? I would say that's maybe one thing that has always been uh, um, fascinating to me is that this is such a big country, vast geography, and one time zone. Right, and、uh, it's always been something quite fascinating for me. I don't ask me why, but that's something. I think what I read was that they wanted it to to help to unify the country from all the way in Xinjiang to all the way east in. Right, right, right. I I, I get that.、Uh, still, yeah, yeah. Interest me. It's amazing when there's people when you who wake are, up in Tibet and、uh, yeah, yeah. it's the same time as Shanghai. Exactly.、Like. Great. Number two. What do you have a favorite word or phrase in Chinese? Uh, well, I have two.、Uh, one is,、uh, forgive my accent. I know you're going to look at me and say, "What is he saying?" Jumo yukai. Okay. Have a good weekend. It was actually the first words I learned in Chinese, and I was known for saying Jumo yukai. I mean, I was very active in Chinese on Fridays, typically because that was what I could use. The other one has been coming later is Haojo Bujian. Long time no see. Uh, just because it's good to reunite with friends and you know people you haven't met for a long time, so I like this sentence. I like the way it sounds. I love it. What is your favorite destination within China? Well, that's interesting. Well, I think one of the most memorable trip I have made in China is Tibet.、Uh, 18 months ago, 12 months ago, I had the chance with a few friends to go to、uh, Lhasa and just travel.、Uh, In Tibet, and、uh, it's been a fascinating experience at many levels: cultural, religious,、uh, geographic. You know, arriving and landing in a place that is above four thousand forty-six hundred meters is quite an experience in itself.、Uh, it's a beautiful place. So, did you arrive by train or by plane? By plane,、uh, flew from Shanghai to Xi'an and Xi'an to to,、uh, to Lhasa. So it's. A shock, right?、Uh, as you arrive,、um, some of my friends were shocked immediately. It took me a little bit more time,、um, but、uh, it's it was it was fascinating. The place is beautiful, and understanding how people live their religion, live Buddhism.、Um, I'm not an expert in Buddhism, but I have been very impressed by how connected they are all all the time to their practice and their philosophy. So. 
Great, thank you. This is a pertinent question. If if you left China, what would you miss the most, and what would you miss the least? Oh, I miss the least easy pollution. Mm. Uh, Shanghai and all the cities. It is not the most uh, accompanying things when you know people talk to you about Shanghai and say, "Oh my God, look at the air quality." Having an app and checking it every day was at one point I gave up, but I won't miss that. Uh, what I will miss the most, the people. I found the people, especially in Shanghai, which is where I lived, very close to my culture, European, Latin, loud, speaking, saying what they think, very direct. I love that. I love that. Very. Uh, um, I remember walking in the street maybe a couple of days after I arrived, and I passed by a truck driver, a delivery guy, who was talking to the guy in the shop, and they were screaming at each other. And I thought they were going to fight. Actually, no, they ended up laughing. I had no idea what they were talking about, but... I will miss that. I will miss the people. Especially in Japan, where people are very, very polite. <laughs> I won't get there. Is there anything that still mystifies you about life in China? No, nothing mystifies me. I'm a very uh, kind of an open you know, person, so no. Um, something that surprises me still is that people keep offering me hot water, not telling me. So I keep being surprised by hot water coming in. You know, it's, I'm always expecting the tea bag to come. Uh, but that's pretty much that. What's your favorite place to go out to eat or drink or just hang out? There's many. When you live in Shanghai, I have to say you're spoiled about that. I recently discovered a very good uh, Cantonese restaurant in a hotel called Edition Hotel. It's right off the band. It's called Canton Disco. If you have not been there, I recommend you try it. It's great food, great environment. Um, I love this place. Uh, I have many hangouts, places where I go to. I live you know, in the center, so some Mexican food that I love, I enjoy. Uh, and many of my friends would like to hang out there, but um, this one I recommend to try. Great. What's the best or worst purchase you made in China? I don't have a worst purchase because sometimes, you know, what you buy is what it is. But the best purchase I've made is like a little more than a year ago, I bought a scooter, a Neo. Scooter, I don't want to make advertisement, but this is amazingly wonderful. It changed my life in, in Shanghai on weekends and the freedom that you have to get on it and just uh, you know go around the French concession or explore the place. I've been biking a lot before that. This is just great and I love my little bike. I'm going to miss it when I leave. This is interesting because I, I was tempted to do a scooter and then I got into the whole Mobike thing, but you're, you're saying I'm missing out. Uh, definitely. For me, yes, definitely. Especially for me and Mobike, I have tend to pick the wrong ones. With, with obvious results. Yeah. What is your favorite WeChat sticker? I have a couple, but the one I, uh, I use a lot is a little uh, baby chicken uh, that looks very grumpy and has a cigarette in his mouth. And that's the way I look and I sound, I think, on Mondays. <laughs> so typically I send that to anybody who's talking to me on Mondays that's the face I make because it represents my mood really my mood another one I have a nickname for my wife is Baby Pig and I have a little Baby Pig as a sticker that I use sometimes it's done in a very nice way not in a of course well I've, you've just sent me them they look, uh, they look pretty fun so I will post them on our, on our yeah. social media and what's your go-to song to sing at KTV? I would that I cannot do anything but think about Beauty and the Beast. I've been very involved in the new Broadway show that we have here at Shanghai series of Beauty and the Beast, and I have spent so much time both in New York and you know here with the with the team working on that. So it sticks to my mind right now. I would say Beauty and the Beast. Great. And finally, what other China-related media or sources of information do you rely on? 
Well, I, I have. I, I tend to rely on many media sources, not just China, to kind of um, check on news and stuff. On my uh, phone, I use Xinhua News. That's the one I use the most, and I'm um, happy with that. Well, thank you so much, Philippe. I really appreciate you coming in. And the last question I ask everyone, which will include you, is who out of everyone you know in China would you recommend that I interview next? So I'm thinking about a colleague of mine that has been working in China for now more than 20 years. Um, his name is Murray King. He's the head of public affairs for Shanghai Disney Resort, a diplomat by trade for Canadian. Uh, so arrived in in China through Beijing and the China, uh, Canadian embassy, uh, moved off the public service to business and uh, moved to Shanghai maybe 18 years ago. Uh, he's, yeah, I think, a beautiful example of somebody who's um, a blend of Western and Chinese culture, understands the culture, speaks the language, embraces it, is extremely knowledgeable about anything China related, very curious. Um, so I think he would be a great, uh, a great man to talk to. Sounds great, Philippe. I look forward to interviewing him. And thanks once again for coming. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thanks again to Philippe for coming to my home to record this one with me. It was a Saturday morning since it was the um, the one time I could grab him actually for an hour. And then he was off again on the scooter he mentioned. Um, unfortunately, I totally forgot to grab a photo with him, so that's a shame. Uh, but for all the other images, please go to Mosaic of China on Instagram and on Facebook. Uh, oh, and there's also a WeChat group, so send me a note and I'll add you there if you like. And on these platforms, you can see all the other images, such as... Uh, Philippe's object, which was that photo of Mickey Mouse on the Great Wall. His two favorite WeChat stickers, um, one was the angry chicken and the other was the baby pig, uh, and lots of other goodies as well. One of these goodies actually was an interesting graphic I found on Wikipedia, which shows how China was split into five time zones uh, before it was made all into one time zone in 1949. So uh, yeah, one for the geeks out there. I don't have any corrections uh, from this chat other than to say that uh, at one point we mentioned the French concession, which is a common slip. We of course meant to say the former French concession. It came to an end in uh, 1943, so definitely former. And just in case it wasn't clear with Philippe's two favorite phrases in Chinese, so Jomo Kuai Le means happy weekend and Hao Jiao Bu Jian means long time no see. And finally, yes, drinking warm or hot water is definitely a thing in China and elsewhere in Asia too, of course. According to Chinese medicine and the internet, uh, drinking a glass of warm water helps the digestive system and supposedly aids blood flow. And on the other hand, cold water slows down organ functions and causes muscles to contract. Well, so there you have it then. And that was it, the first episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Mosaic of China is me, Oscar Fuchs, graphics designed by Danny Newell, editing by Milo Di Prieto. And if you like us, please rate and comment on iTunes or wherever you download this podcast. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Music